That's why I gave it to you instead of doing it myself. Uh, We're going to be looking at these passages today, um, but before we do that, uh, just find, because we're going to look at it in a moment, Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. So it's always helpful to have your Bibles open, but particularly today, we just want to see certain words and phrases here that I hope you can take home with you and meditate on this week. As I started this series, Where Are You?, we're trying to think about <clears throat> where we are before we stare at Jesus for several months in the book of Luke. So we've just been asking that question, some out of Genesis, some out of Exodus, where are we? And we've talked about um, living in the wilderness, especially coming out of Exodus passage. And I started this series by talking about an illustration of a guy named Felix Bumgarner. You remember him, the guy who floated 25 miles up into space and then jumped out like a skydiver, and he ended up going over 800 miles an hour, his body following following through space. And as I've mentioned several times, the biggest danger they thought about this thing was him getting into an uncontrollable spin and blacking out. And so my concern is that by the speed of the culture that we all live in, the pace of change, the emergency that we hear every day on the news, that nothing is more important than what you're hearing right now, nothing is bigger than what you're hearing right now, all these lies and misinformations that that are coming to us at a tremendous speed, it's easy to live in the culture and black out. It's easy to live in the culture and get into an uncontrollable spin, and I don't want us to be in that spin, but it takes real skill to navigate. We can't somehow get out of it, so how do we fall through this culture at great speed without getting into the spin? And that's what I want to try to address this morning by looking at the Old Testament prophet, the man named Daniel. How is it that Daniel and his three friends, who probably everybody remembers from a Sunday school class or a vacation Bible school, because his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're the ones that are in the fiery furnace, Daniel's in the lion's den in chapter 6. How is it that these four teenage boys, think about that, they come to Babylon as teenagers, 16, 17, 18 years old. How do they manage to live their entire lives in Babylon? How do they manage to live in this culture that's coming at them that's so different than their own culture? How do they live in powerful positions, which they had, and yet stay faithful? They're able to live inside the culture and yet resist the spin. And what can we learn from them? So just a little way in terms of a background, it's about 600 B.C. And the Israelites have turned away from the Lord. Remember, the Israelites have been saved out of Egypt and they've successfully made it through the wilderness and into the promised land under Joshua. Now it's several hundred years later and they, over time their, their focus has eroded or I might say has shifted, shifted away from the Lord and towards themselves. And Jeremiah gives you a pretty good account of that. Jeremiah is a contemporary of Daniel, and this is how Jeremiah describes it in chapter 2. Has a nation ever changed its gods? So here's the pastor looking at the, the Israelites, and they're saying, he's saying, hey, you've changed your gods, but my people have exchanged the, their glory 
for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror. They have no awe of me. They have no awe of me. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug for themselves their own cisterns, cisterns which cannot hold water. It's a powerful description. The the thirst that everyone has, including the Israelites, the thirst for purpose, the thirst for meaning, the thirst for truth. Those all those thirsts were being quenched by the Lord. They were getting their information. They were forming their worldview around the Lord, and those got exchanged over time. And now those thirsts, which everyone still has, they're quenched by themselves. I don't. I don't need the Lord to to answer my thirst. I'm going to dig my own cistern. I'm going to dig my own well. I'm going to dig a well and then drink from whatever I'm putting in my own well. It's really a repeat of Genesis chapter 3. And just like in Genesis, Adam and Eve were disciplined. They were removed from the garden and they were sent into exile. The Israelites, again, just the same pattern. They're disciplined. They're removed from the promised land and they're sent into exile. We have Genesis 2.0 here. And when you read verse 2 out of Daniel chapter 1, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar. That's what you're supposed to do when you're reading that. So just in case you missed that. When you hear that, it's, uh uh-oh, Shinar, boom, 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 Shinar. Shinar is supposed to help, something's supposed to fire in your mind. The people are going back to Shinar. Now, what is that? Genesis chapter 11. That's why I wanted you to notice this very famous passage. This is the place where they, the people wanted to build a tower. Remember the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And what did they do? They created a new technology, these bricks that they're burned, and they felt like with this new technology, they could, verse 4, come let us build ourselves a city, a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Shinar. Shinar is the place where people build their own platform. Make a name for themselves. Disregard God. Can you imagine living in a culture like that? A culture that has no more awe of God. A culture that believes it has the technology to build its own platform. A culture that's interested in making a great name for themselves. Can you imagine such a culture? You see, it's not too different, is it? Genesis chapter 11 to today. And the Israelites are being sent back to Shinar. It's like a constant object lesson. Oh my gosh, we've come back to Shinar. I mean, here we are. This is where Abraham came out of. And now God's sending us back in. And God uses this as a powerful reminder of that when you, when you let go of God, things don't go well. And God uses the powerful kingdom of Babylon and the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar to capture Israel. 
And then you see in verses 4 and 5 what Nebuchadnezzar does. This was was his strategy, was to deport all the uh, royal and intellectual people from an area and bring them to Babylon and educate them for three years in his system. So I'm going to have an extreme makeover of all the royalty, all the sort of peasants and uneducated people. They can stay in Israel, but all the, all the people who are, are of, of some kind of value or worth, they get the extreme makeover. And just notice the four parts of this extreme makeover. They're all right here in the text. Verse 4, education. Part of every extreme makeover is education. We've got to get these people educated, and they, they're going to learn everything about the way we, we live. The language and literature, it says, of the Chaldeans, which is the Babylons, is designed to say, you need, now need to be thinking like our culture. We want you to think that way. They're emasculated. Verse 7, four teenage boys turned into eunuchs. I'll let the parents describe what that means to their children. But Nebuchadnezzar removes any sexual desire because he wants all of their desire focused on Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want any of your emotional energy going out in any way. I want it all coming towards me, Nebuchadnezzar says. Verse 5, assimilation. You eat and drink at the king's table. You get comfortable with the culture. What the culture gives you, you, you desire now, you hunger for And then you see, finally, identification. They're given new names. And notice the names aren't just a name. It's a narrative. You're you're being given a new identity. Daniel is turned to Belshazzar. So Daniel means God is my judge. And his new names means Bel protects me. You you hear that? It's a new narrative. It's not just a new name. It's a new narrative. It's a new way to see your life. Hananiah, God is gracious, turned to Shadrach means command of Aku, which is the moon god. Instead of me being here as a product of God's grace, I'm here by the command of a moon god. Mishael, who is what God is? To Meshach, who is what Aku is? Azariah, Yahweh is my helper. To Abednego, I'm a servant of Nebo, another god there. This, this is a, an extreme makeover. Stop and consider just for a moment the incredible difficulty they must have had trying to navigate this culture. They've been ripped out of Jerusalem on all, all likelihood, a very small town comparatively. They've been brought to this massive city, like coming from Leland to New York City. And they have to navigate this overwhelming culture that's really swallowing them. They cannot help but be swallowed by the culture. They never live anywhere else their whole lives. They spend their entire adult lives in exile. And when you're being completely swallowed by the culture, where exactly do you draw the line? I mean, do you think they drew the line in the right place? Should they have somehow refused to even be involved in this and maybe even risk their lives and say, we just can't even be here in any way? How do you know when integration turns into assimilation? See, that's a difficult line. Don't you find that a struggle? 
I'm trying to be all things to all people, Paul says, but yet I'm not, not trying to assimilate that nobody knows the difference. But where, where does that integration turn into assimilation? Why, does, why do Daniel and his friends draw the line at eating and drinking? Why didn't they draw the line at being a eunuch? That might be where I would have chosen to draw the line. You see, it's, it's complex. It's complex. It's not easy. And the reason I'm pointing this out, and I think it's important for us to wrestle with and have conversations about, is the choices we face in our culture are complex. So often, because of the way our culture is structured right now, everything's binary. You know this. You're either left or right. You know, you're either right or wrong. You're either Democrat or Republican. You're either red or blue. You're either in or out. You're, it's, it's only two choices. That's how our culture forces you into choices. Everything's binary. Yet that inside of our culture, there's going to be many places, many choices by living in the culture that draw lines that are complex. We are not all going to draw the same line. That's an important thing for us to remember. When we're being swallowed by the culture, not everyone is going to draw the exact same line as you are. You might not even have drawn the same line as Daniel and his friends would have drawn. But I just want us to make sure that there's some margin for complexity Think about Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus eats and drinks with the sinners. Remember this? He has a, has a friendship with Matthew and then goes home and Matthew invites all of his gross friends over for dinner and Jesus shows up at the dinner. And what do the religious people say? Why is he assimilating? And I don't know that they said this, but I'm guessing somebody could have left from the religious crowd and said, you know, Daniel, he never would have eaten and drinking with those guys. You see, it's complex. It's not as simple as just a binary choice when we're getting swallowed by the culture of how we draw draw our lines. So we need to be careful. We need to allow margin. We need to allow for complexity. And we need to realize that good Christians of good conscience are going to draw different boundaries in regards to cultural integration. I'm not talking about the Bible here. I'm just talking about living in a culture. And we need to make sure we don't explode and fragment into tiny groups who all hold the exact same views. It's a big danger, especially now. I've got my list of ten cultural things, and if you're not on my side, then you're on the wrong side, and now I've got to get away from you. It's very easy to become divided in that way, and it might be over immigration or education or environment or politics or race or mask or the vaccination the list is endless. We all have to make choices. I'm not, hear me, I'm not trying to say don't have a choice, don't have an opinion. I'm not saying don't voice your opinion. I'm just saying be careful. Be careful. It's complex. We live in a complex place, so we need real wisdom to know how are we supposed to navigate this one? It seems so difficult. The choices are so complex. Now I can hear you saying, well, what about... Can already hear that. That's why you have lunch with your friends, right? That's why you go to lunch. What about? Well, what, I thought he was saying, "Well, good. That's what you need to." Don't call me. Talk to your friends. 
What about? What about? See, that's where I want the conversation to go. What about this? How am I supposed to answer this? This is more complex than just a binary choice. I feel like I'm losing by going either way. Those are the kinds of conversations you have to allow when you're trying to figure out how to live in a culture that's moving at such great speed. So how do Daniel and his three friends stay faithful? That's the real question I'm trying to ask and answer, and I'm going to give you very briefly four tactics. Four tactics. They're all here in the, in the text. Number one, verse 8, they have a resolve. You see that? But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. The, the Greek actually literally means put at the center. I like that better. Daniel will not put at the center anything that defiles himself. He has the Lord at the center, and anything or anyone that comes into that center to replace God, he's not going to do that. Now, Bible scholars have mixed opinions as to why Daniel and his three friends don't eat the king's food. Sometimes they think it's an Old Testament food law. Other times it's food. This food has been sacrificed to idols. Some think just the intimacy of eating together and drinking together is a way of saying, I'm digesting your culture. So there's different views on that, but whatever, whatever it is, Daniel clearly thinks that he's putting himself in some danger. He's, he's in some danger by putting something else at the center, so he resolves to say, I'm not going to do that. And what I would, the way I would say it is he's decided with his friends to trim and tame their physical appetites for this world. And this is a place everyone has to be at some point. Now, where you are and where it happens to you and where it happens to me might be different, but everyone has to exercise this skill. I have to learn to trim and tame my appetites for the world. There are some tables I have to push away from. And maybe you push away from a table that doesn't seem like a big deal to me, and maybe I push away from a different table, but there's something that about that's at this table that if I let it into my life, it's going to become the center, so I have to push away from that table. I can't allow that to be in my life. The Apostle Paul understands this kind of taming needed. 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body and make it my slave. See, my body has these hungers and appetites, and if I don't trim them, if I don't tame them, then I'm going to become enslaved to my appetites, and I don't want that to happen. That's how you get into a spin. There's a really an interesting book. The title is called Faith for Exiles, Faith for Exiles. So it's perfect for this passage. It's a book just about how do you live in the exile, but his particular subtitle is How Do You Live in the Digital Babylon? You see, what the author's saying is we're all in a digital Babylon. If you were with me in the year 1995, there was no digital Babylon. There was no digital. But now we all can pull out our phones, can we not? All pull out our computers. We lit, we're all consumed, being consumed by a digital Babylon. And how do you navigate that digital Babylon? And he talks about that. And he talks about what happens in the digital Babylon. It's like the, um, the ride at the fair. I don't know if you know this ride. It used to be called the Scrambler. Anybody know this ride? It's one of my favorite rides. So you get in a little cart, right? And it's kind of a two-person, maybe a three-person cart. And it's got like three carts on it. 
and three, three, and they all spin around like this. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not doing a great job of describing this. But the funny thing is, is if you get on the inside seat, which is really the seat you want, in case you ever get there, get the inside seat. Don't get in first. Say, no, honey, you get in first, really. Because what happens is things spins you out to the edges, right? And no matter how much you want to stay centered, you cannot. I mean, even strong Paul Phillips, I'm just like, whoa, crushing this person at the end. Now, I just do it for fun. So I'm like, yeah, you get in. Ah, whoops, I can't hold on. You know, so... It's, it's such a fun ride. But that's what digital Babylon is. You think you can hold on, and when you're right at the center for just one second, you can't. But the momentum of picking up your phone all the time is slinging you out against the edge. And how do you live in a culture that's constantly throwing you to the edges, constantly throwing you to the edges? That's what the writer's trying to talk about. And here's one of his, he has five survival techniques. In a complex and anxious age, develop muscles of cultural discernment. Muscles of cultural discernment. Might be the same way of just saying trimming and taming your appetites. You have to be culturally discerning. How is this ride affecting you? How is this table affecting you? How is this throwing your mind out to the edge? And you just say, you know, that that's might be okay for you, but it's not okay for me because it starts spinning my mind up and I get thrown away from the Lord. I can't be there. I've got to push away from that table. So I want to ask this question and have you wrestle with it. What table are you currently eating from that causes your heart or mind or soul to spin out of control? What habit needs to be tamed? Might be looking at your phone, might be movies, might be your Instagram feed. Might be constantly looking at the news or the stock market. What scrambles your mind? Do you know? And then secondly, are you going to be honest with yourself? See, I have this happen a lot of times. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. See, when somebody says that, it's probably a big deal. It's just kind of a way of excusing. I can look at that, and it's really, I mean, it's, you know, it's not that great, but, but what happens? But my mind spins out. It spins out. So you have to make a resolve. You have to say, I'm going to put the Lord at the center, and when I watch things come in and they start pushing at the center... I'm going to say, no, I've got to push away from that table. What is that table? Number two, relationships. These are tactics. There's more than four tactics, but here's the second one. They have, they have an intertwined relationship, these four men. I would love to be in this group of four. They, tra- they were able to tame their appetites because they were tethered together. It wasn't just one man. Sometimes one man has to stand up, and Daniel does that in the lion's den. But most of the time, the journey, the Christian journey, is meant to be tethered to other people. And it's no surprise to see these relationships as key. When Job is suffering, how many friends come and see him? Three friends. David has mighty men, but how many mighty men are at the core? Three. 
when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he invites three friends to come. See this pattern. Daniel's in the Daniel 3, the fiery furnace. This is where wicked King Nebuchadnezzar, we didn't read it, but he makes this, remember this giant golden image of himself and you're supposed to bow down and he comes to, to uh, they find out that the three friends don't bow down. Let's just look at this, verse 13, chapter 3. When Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these four, four men, these three men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said, Is it true that you don't serve my God, which is really me, and worship my image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of these horns and pipes, then you can bow down and worship. You can kind of get out of the fiery furnace. But if you don't, you're going to meet, be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Again, just try to imagine standing in that pressure point. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, I think it's important there's three. I think the, the we here is much stronger than the me. They look around. Are we all going to stand up right now? Yes, we are. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He will deliver one way or the other. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God. Wow. That's powerful. I think that power comes from being we. I think that power also comes from previously trimming and taming your worldly appetites. You see, they had been practicing at something that really should be relatively easy. I'm just not going to eat that food right now. And it's going to help me at a future moment when really the pressure comes on, I can push away from another table. You see how that helps? It's kind of like cross-training. I do some training over here that really is going to help me for my big event. It doesn't seem to have a direct connection, but this is what they're doing. When you're trimming and taming your appetites, you're just setting yourself up to be able to say no at a much bigger moment. And people who haven't trimmed and tamed their appetites over time will not be able to stand in this kind of pressure. Daniel's three friends are able to stand here. Again, for this, from this book, Faith for Exiles, here's another way. When isolation, here's how do you live through digital Absalom or Babylon. When isolation and mistrust are the norms... When isolation and mistrust are the norms. You hear that? What happens in the digital world? You get isolated. And what happens when you get isolated? You become suspicious of other people. You don't really talk to people. You just see it on Twitter. And you become suspicious. Oh, they think that. They must have really lost their whatever. Right? That's what happened. I, I get isolated and then I become distrustful. And to fight against that, the author says... Forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. Forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. I think that's beautiful. Because people of different generations bring a different perspective. 
It's just so helpful for me at 58 to be around some of our interns who are 20, 22, because they just see the world in a different way, and they help me see in a different way. And I feel quite certain that I help them see things in a different way. It's so helpful to have that. Just last week or two weeks ago, I was leaving the church on a Sunday, and uh, two, two, uh, a couple who's getting married, Amanda and Chade, they had been singing that day. And I was walking out, and I saw them together, and I was like, oh, you guys did such a great job worshiping. And, and they said, well, we're going to lunch today with Gil and Jan. Gil and Jan are a couple here in our church that came from Trinity. They're in the Evergreen group, let's say that. <laughs> I don't want to know. I don't know exactly what their age, but they're older than me. And they said, yeah, yeah, they invited us to lunch. They said, we'll buy the lunch if you bring the wisdom. And I thought, that's so beautiful. Here, this couple who's 25, we're going to be with this couple who's 75, who's been married for 50 or 60 years. To me, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's how you stay to get, you stay connected and you stay, you, you don't get into the spin. I hope you have these kinds of relationships, whether they're peer relationships like Daniel had with his three friends or they're intergenerational, you need relationships. Just one more quick illustration because it happened last week. I was out in my boat by myself and I anchored up at, low, at, at a tide that was going out. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so I got stuck. So I call, I text my friend, I need rest. Here's the, here's the text. I need rescue. And my friend, where are you? And I text him, I'm stuck on this sandbar. He says, I'm on my way. And I thought, that's, that's, I hope you have somebody like that. That you can text and say, just simply, I need rescue. Where are you? I'm on my way. That's beautiful. That's how you stay out of the spin. You have those kind of relationships that you can depend on. Third, you have a rhythm or a routine. Daniel chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. This is Daniel in the lion's den. It's important now that we're moving from chapter 1 to chapter 6. The time has moved. It's now 50 years later. You need to know that. The teenage Daniel has turned into the evergreen Daniel. He's 70. And here's what I want you to digest here from this in verse 10. Is Daniel's habit to pray is three times a day. And if we had time, we could see this biblical pattern. Sometimes it's called the divine hours. Psalm 55, Acts 3. You pray at 9, noon, and 3. And three times a day. For 50 years, three times a day for 50 years, Daniel prayed. I just want that to sink in. See, he's going to have to face lions, and what's going to give him the courage to face lions? This habit, this rhythm, this routine. For 50 years, Daniel matched the rhythm of his heart with the heart of God. So that when another king comes in like Nebuchadnezzar and says, hey, you're going to be thrown to the lions, Daniel's able to resist the spin. That's how you stay out of the spin. 
you have a rhythm, and there can be all kinds of spiritual disciplines, but here's especially prayer. And I, I want to just ask the people, for all of us, but especially if you're in this age group of, let's say, 18 to 25, what, what rhythm shapes your life? You're in a rhythm. Everyone's in a rhythm. What rhythm shapes your life? Could you, for the next month, the next year, in the next 50 years, but let's start with a month, just set your watch for 9, 12, and 3, or you can pick your own three times, and just pause, disengage for a moment, and pray. See, if you're 9 to 25, the, the, that decade of your life, you're going to make some of the most important decisions in your whole life in that decade. And what might be different? How might you be shaped for the rest of your life by just implementing this rhythm, this routine right now? Imagine the kind of person you would be if you started this when you were 18 and you got to 78 You'd be a totally different kind of person. You would be a beautiful person. You would be somebody people would be so attracted to because you have the heartbeat of God running through your soul. Such a beautiful thing. And I would ask you to not try to do this by yourself. How many friends should you get? Three friends. You should get three of your friends to help you out. Say, let's do this challenge together. Let's just try it for a month. Maybe it can turn into a longer time. The final R in this is to rest in God's sovereignty. Let's turn back to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. This one point is, I think, the foundation for Daniel and could be an entire sermon series. And I think it's actually very easy to skip right over. Daniel is the author of the book. And he thinks this one point is so important, he puts it right at the first two verses. Read verse 1 with me. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is the, the vertical, the horizontal view of what's happening. If you're on the ground, this is what happened. I was in Jerusalem one day. We had a king. His name was Jehoiakim. And then a big army came from Nebuchadnezzar, from Babylon, and suddenly we're moving out. We're walking 500 miles back to Babylon. But then... That's not the most important viewpoint. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Do you see that? This is huge. This is everything for Daniel. This might be everything for you too. This is the way Daniel views his life unfolding. He's not just some small pawn caught up in events that are happening. No, Daniel's whole life, he saw it as under the direct sovereign hand of God. The reason he's walking from Jerusalem back to Babylon is because the Lord has given him an assignment. It's not an accident. He sees it as an assignment. And he's trying to say to the reader, this, my whole life, I'm going to spend the rest of my adult life away from Jerusalem and in exile. That's my life's assignment. It's not an accident. And he's trying to tell us right at the very beginning. This is his worldview. This is how he sees his life unfolding. And I just wonder for a moment, how do you see your life unfolding? 
Now, this turns out to be quite an unexpected assignment for Daniel. One scholar said it this way, Daniel's life was like a depth charge. You know what that is? That's the, what you roll off a ship that has to sink down some distance before it explodes, hoping to take out a submarine. It's a good picture. Daniel, God wanted someone to sink down into the culture. I need somebody who's going to get swallowed and then explode. That's what I'm looking for. And I need Daniel. He chose Daniel to go down and live right next to Nebuchadnezzar faithfully in positions of power so that even evil Nebuchadnezzar could come and meet the Lord himself. That's what's so amazing about this. Listen to Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's last words. I, Nebuchadnezzar, bless the Most High and praise and honor God who lives forever. I praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven for all of his works are right and all of his ways are just. Imagine that coming from a man who made a monument to himself. How did that happen? It happened because of Daniel. See, even when you're sinking, you're on assignment. Verse 17, we'll stop here. You can make your own connections pretty easily to Jesus. And a stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den of lions and sealed. You know it, do you not? God needed someone to sink into the depths of our culture. God needed someone to sink into the depths of my own wicked heart and live faithfully because I couldn't. And Jesus detonated just like Daniel. When people came to take the stone away, guess what? He's alive. The way you make it through Babylon in the end is by Jesus. You got to have these tactics. But the person who really rescues you from yourself is another Daniel. His name is Jesus. He came and laid in a tomb and came out so we might come out the other side as well. Let's pray together. Lord, ah, so much here in this passage. So much application for, for each person here to walk away with. And I pray that they'd have a conversation with you and a conversation with a friend, somebody that's here with them that could hear and process. And we're all living in Babylon now. And we are being swallowed, but we can still remain faithful. We can be like a depth charge. But it's difficult. You know, you know it's difficult. Would you walk with us, not, not just in our, our bodies, but our minds, to hear you, to know where we are, to know what tables to push away from, to live faithfully. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.